for those who are of any, of any Scotch or Irish blood in them, the melody to Be Thou My Vision strikes a chord deep within, does it not? It brings out the Celt in all of us, I think. But the words are far more glorious than the melody, true enough. And it is my prayer this morning that we would indeed have a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ given to us through God's holy word. To that end, we are going to meditate upon one wonderful little statement tucked away in the book of John, chapter 10, verse 10. We have already considered the first half of this chapter in detail. You already know the context. And so I am comfortable at simply diving in and extracting these words of Christ and meditating upon them, and trust that the Spirit of God will impress them upon our hearts. Uh, The statement, it's found in the second part of verse 10, where the Lord Jesus declares, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. When you pour yourself uh, a tea or lemonade or Dr. Pepper, whatever the case may be, you're distracted and you're pouring away, pouring away. The cup fills and it overflows. That is the meaning of the term here in John chapter 10, verse 10. I came that they may have life and that this life wouldn't merely fill up, but that it would overflow, that they may have abundant, abundant life. What's he talking about? At the outset, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know it, I know it, is not talking about personal peace and affluence. We are never promised in Scripture a bed of roses. We are never, ever Anywhere in the word of God promised prosperity. If God grants me prosperity, financial, material, or otherwise, if God grants you prosperity, thank him for it. But it is not our God-given right. We are not promised prosperity anywhere in the Bible. What we are promised is an abundant life. By that, the Lord Jesus Christ means spiritual life. Life enjoyed in Him. Life that has its end. Life that finds its fulfillment in His person and in His accomplished work. That is the life of which the Lord Jesus Christ speaks here. If we we do not grasp that, if we don't understand what it is he's referring to or what he is talking about, then the words of the Lord Jesus are, are, are meaningless to us. We need to be very clear, crystal clear, as to what he has in mind when he issues this great promise, when he makes this tremendous declaration, I came, here's why I have come, that they, my sheep, my people, my bride, may have life and have it abundantly. And what I want us to do this morning is very simple. What I want us to do is consider seven reasons 
why this life is abundant. Simple enough. Seven reasons why this life in Christ is overflowing. And let me say at the outset, if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, I pray that the Spirit of God would give you eyes to see and that you would see the wonder of this abundant life that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us here this morning who are Christians, I hope that this will restore a little perspective. We need our perspective straightened once in a while, don't we? We need to, have a, we need to be refocused in terms of our spiritual sight and understanding. And I pray that the Spirit of God might do that for us this morning. And so seven reasons why this life that is found in Christ is overflowing. Number one, number one, this life is abundant because Christ pays all my debts. We all know what a debt is. We know what it means to be in debt financially. Uh, We certainly know what it means to have a deficit, a federal deficit. We know what debt is all about. Well, as human beings, we have a spiritual debt. This debt is owed to God. God has a balance sheet. And we will one day receive a bill, amount owed from God. And on this bill, there will be two items, line items, clearly delineated. This is what you Oh, me. God himself will declare it. You are indebted to me. And this is your debt right here in black and white. First of all, there is the debt of obedience. God is our creator. We are but creatures. And as creatures, we owe God our allegiance. We owe him our obedience. He has given us his perfect law. He has revealed his standard of righteousness and he has declared you must be perfect as I am perfect. You must obey me. Therefore, there is the debt of obedience. It's a huge debt. And to make matters worse, in addition to the debt of obedience, there is the debt of judgment. We haven't obeyed God. And because we haven't obeyed God, we have incurred a debt, the debt of God's judgment, that's the penalty. If I go down the 56 here, merrily on my way to Granbury at 90 miles an hour, and a deputy's waiting for me, he pulls me over, what does he give me? A citation, a ticket. I am now in debt. There is a penalty. By the way, it would never happen to me. It might happen to Allison, but it will never happen to me. Going at that kind of a speed, but you get the idea. You break the laws of the land. You incur a debt. You incur a penalty. It must be paid. But we have broken God's holy law. Therefore, there is a penalty. And the penalty is judgment. Those are our debts. But you see, what wonderful life is ours in Christ. Because you see, Christ pays our debts in full. He pays my debt of obedience. How? He obeyed God, lived a perfect life. And he has paid my debt of judgment. How? He has died on Calvary's cross as my substitute Bearing the wrath of God. Paid in full. I now stand before you this morning debt free. And my friend, that is, oh, that is abundant life. To know there is no terrible debt hanging over my head. 
to know that that obedience that I owe to God, my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, has paid in a fashion I could never pay. And that judgment that hang terribly over me, he has borne it in full at Calvary's cross. That is life overflowing, friend. That is abundant life. Number two, this life in Christ is abundant because Christ satisfies all my needs. Point of clarification, I am not talking about felt needs. I am talking about real needs. When I was 12 years old, I needed a brand new shiny bike. I didn't really need it. I wanted it. When I was a, became a man, teenager, I wanted a brand new shiny car. Didn't want it. I needed it. Now here in Texas, I want a brand new shiny pickup truck with the longhorns on the front. I don't need it. I simply want it. We are not in the realm of felt needs. The realm of real needs. What is it I need? I need grace. I don't know about you because I am a filthy sinner. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is full of grace. My grace is sufficient for you. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. I need righteousness because I am unrighteous, disobedient. Well, Christ is full of righteousness for our sake. God made Him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 I need wisdom because I am a fool, foolhardy, spiritually blind. Well, Christ is full of wisdom. In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, 3. I need peace because my life is turbulent. Christ is full of peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. John 14, 27. I need joy. Because I'll tell you, because of my sin, at times my life is miserable. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is full of joy. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. John 15, verse 11. Those are my needs. And friend, if you aren't a Christian, I affirm to you this morning, those are your needs, whether you realize it or not. Sadly, many people don't. The Word of God speaks to that fact, that condition. Revelation 3.17, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. We have desperate needs, needs for forgiveness, needs for grace, a need for the righteousness of Christ, a need for that peace and joy that flows from Christ. Well, this life in Christ is abundant because Christ himself satisfies, satiates all my needs. Number three, this life is abundant. Because Christ carries all my burdens. 
Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 4, while we are still in this tent, we groan. Why? Being burdened. We bear the burden of discouragement. We bear the crippling effects of of disillusionment and, and depression. We bear the discouragement and the burden of wayward children, of lost loved ones, of dashed hopes and dreams. But here is life in the Lord Jesus Christ in that He bears, He carries our burdens. Listen to the words of Hebrews 4.15. We do not have, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The Word of God there is not talking about that internal solicitation to sin. Christ knew nothing about that. But Christ knew everything about those external temptations, didn't He? He knows. He knows what it means to be rejected. Have you ever been rejected? He knows what it means to be despised. He knows what it means to be abused. He knows what it means to be misunderstood. He knows what it means to be wrongly accused. He knows exactly what it means to be ignored, abandoned, grieved. I'll go a step further. He knows these things better than we do. The Lord Jesus Christ is able to sympathize with us. He is able to empathize better than any friend, any sibling, any spouse. This is wonderful life in that the Lord Jesus Christ carries our burdens. Psalm 55, 22, cast, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Who wrote those words? David, ridiculed by his brothers, persecuted by his king, betrayed by his advisors, hated by his own flesh and blood. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He knew exactly what he was talking about. And he experienced throughout his sojourn on earth that sustaining power, that sustaining grace that is there for all those in Christ. But how often we, even as believers, look away from Christ, don't we? We seek to function independently of him. We seek to operate in our own strength and power. We're we're crazy creatures, aren't we? Crazy habits, because in our greatest hour of need, what do we often do? We find ourselves running in the opposite direction from the very thing we need. Crazy. Crazy. And here we have this great promise that if we would cast our burdens on Christ, if we would draw near to Christ, if we would rest in Christ, look to Christ, He will sustain us carrying each and every last burden. Number four, this life is abundant. Why? Because Christ sanctifies all my afflictions. The well-known words of Romans 8, 28, we know. 
And we know it with certainty. We know it confidently. That our God works all things together for good. To those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. And what wondrous life is this, that the Lord Jesus actually sanctifies our afflictions, that those things that come into our lives, that we would change in a moment if we could, that God actually uses these things for our good. Again, not our personal peace and affluence. What good is in view there? Well, it is that great good that God has planned for us. That we might be made like his son, conformed to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, filled with that fruit of the Holy Spirit, that God has this design even in our afflictions. As one author has written, as the hard frosts in winter bring on the flowers in the spring, and as the night ushers in the morning star. So the evils of affliction produce much good to those that love God. That is abundant life. Number five, this life is abundant because Christ defeats all my enemies. He has defeated sin. He has conquered death. Listen to the words of Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. He has defeated, he has conquered my enemies, including Satan himself. When I think of the battle in which I am involved right now, I must always Keep in mind that the war itself has already been won. The battle has already been won. The conflict has already been won by virtue of Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. I'm simply in cleanup operations right now. Now You ask a a, a historian, uh, when did the Allies win World War II? It wasn't when the peace treaty was signed in 1944. World War II was won on D-Day. And the moment the Allies had a foothold on the continent, the war was over. The fighting did not stop, but the war was won. It was simply a question of time. That's exactly where we find ourselves now as Christians. The war is over. It was won. It was fought. It was won at Calvary's cross. And the Lord Jesus Christ now sits in the heavenly places where far above what all rulers, all authorities, all powers, all dominions. And we read there in Ephesians that God has done what he has put all things in subjection under the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has given Christ as head over all things. And we, by virtue of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, are one with him, seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Friend, if you are down, understand this. The conflict has been won. 
The victory is ours. Yes, we're still caught in the struggle. Yes, we are still caught in the fighting. And I am not minimizing that for one moment. But take great strength. Take great encouragement. Take great comfort in this wonderful truth. That the Lord Jesus Christ has defeated all of our enemies. There is no opposition to his regal power. As Job declares, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Likewise, there is no opposition to Christ's legal power. Satan's power is death. Death's power is sin. Christ has atoned for sin through his death, thereby rendering Satan powerless. This is a wonderful truth. This is a heartwarming truth. This is abundant life. When we consider the fact that we are united with a risen Savior. We are one with the one who has defeated each and every enemy. And we simply are awaiting the consummation of the age. When we will be with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Number six, we're getting there. Only two more. Number six, this life is abundant because Christ guarantees my inheritance. Lots can happen with inheritances in our days. Uh, Wills can be challenged. After lawyers and the government take their cuts, there oftentimes isn't much left. We're talking about an inheritance that is imperishable. We are talking about an inheritance that is untouchable. We read in Romans 8:17, "We are heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. Our inheritance is God Himself. A day is coming when our minds will be full of God. We won't be able to conceive of God in a fashion greater than that which we know Him. A day is coming when we will love God with an inability to love Him even any more than we do. A day is coming when God will impress Himself upon our souls to such an extent that we are enraptured with His glory. As Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, in that day, God will be all in all. That is our inheritance. And it's an inheritance that can't be touched. It can't be altered. God's word makes it very clear that we have been sealed. Sealed with whom? The Holy Spirit himself. This Holy Spirit who is given as what? A pledge, a guarantee of what? Our inheritance. It is a certainty. God himself has stamped us, sealed us with his own image. By virtue of the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And God will not reject his own image. And on that day yet future, when we stand in the presence of God, by virtue of His image in us, that indwelling presence of the Spirit of God that unites us to the Lord Jesus Christ, we will enter into the fullness of glory. 
Oh, that will be life. But I'll tell you, if we spent but a little time thinking about it now, how that would transform our lives in the present, if we had but this heavenly mindedness, if we had but an iota of perception of all that awaits us in the future, how our lives in the present would overflow, superabound, spill over in anticipation of what this great God has prepared for those who love Him. The seventh reason is this. The seventh reason why this life is abundant. And perhaps the most important of them all, the best till last. This life is abundant because Christ is altogether lovely. Altogether lovely. The phrase is taken from Scripture. It's found in the Song of Solomon. Chapter 5, verse 16, the bridegroom, he is altogether lovely. He is altogether desirable. Why? The Lord Jesus Christ, for starters, is altogether lovely in his person. John Flavel writes, the wonderful union and perfection of the divine and human nature in Christ. Render him an object of admiration and adoration by angels and by men. Lovely in his person. We can build on that. The Lord Jesus Christ is lovely in his offices. What are we talking about? His threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. As a prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ reveals God to us. As our priests, the Lord Jesus Christ reconciles us to God, making peace between us. And as our King, the Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns in us. Lovely, altogether desirable in His offices. And we can build on that. Our Lord Jesus Christ is altogether lovely in His relations. As a Redeemer. He delivers us from misery. As a bridegroom, He unites us to Himself whereby we become one flesh. As an advocate, He pleads for us for all eternity before the throne of God. And as a friend, He loves us with an unchanging, unwavering, unfailing love. This life is abundant because the Lord Jesus Christ is altogether lovely. There is a great story found in Genesis chapter 24. There in Genesis chapter 24, Abraham decides, hey, it's time for Isaac to get married. He needs a bride. Not from the people's groups around us here. Nope, I'm going to send my servant, Eliezer. Was that his name? back to Mesopotamia, Abraham's homeland, to find a bride, a wife suitable for his son Isaac. Eliezer makes the journey. He's wondering how he's ever going to find this woman, this, this woman who could be a bride for his master's service, son Isaac. And so he utters this simple prayer, Lord, when I get to that land, 
look, I'm going to start asking these ladies for water, to give me water and to give water to my camels. Just make it so that whatever young damsel, yes, dips her pitcher into the well and comes up with the water and, and gives me water to drink and water for all my camels and everything else. May this be the one you have appointed for my master's son, Isaac. And no sooner has he arrived than who comes out to the well? Rebecca. And she dips that pitcher into the well, collects that water for Eliezer and for his livestock, for the camels and everything else. And then Eliezer speaks these words to Rebecca. I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master. And he has become great. And he has given Isaac. All that he has. What is that servant doing? He is trying to woo Rebecca. He is saying to Rebecca, look, this is a good deal. Look, this is a good thing. Abraham, one of the wealthiest men on the face of the earth, God has made him great. And Abraham has given it all to Isaac. Guess what? What's his will become yours. It's a wonderful picture of the Spirit of God wooing the church. It's a wonderful illustration of the Spirit of God enticing the bride of Christ. As Christ himself declares, all that the Father has is mine. And when we become one with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, guess what, brothers and sisters? All that is Christ's becomes ours. And this is abundant life. This is life that is overflowing. And friend, if you are here this morning and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, do, 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 you, do you sense anything here? Does this strike any kind of chord in the depth of your soul? That there is a wonderful man, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The answer for your sin, the answer for your every longing, the answer for your every need, the one who can defeat all your enemies, the one who can guarantee an inheritance that defies explanation. What do you think about that? Does it strike anything? I pray that the Spirit of God might strike your soul and cause you to see, give you eyes to behold, give you a vision, as we sang, of the Lord Jesus Christ and how the bridegroom stoops low to kiss his bride and offers her most wonderfully and most gloriously a life to which all life on this word world pales in comparison. Fred, what do you think of the Lord Jesus Christ? You feel the Spirit of God wooing you this morning. If so, repent of your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in, in faith, the one who alone is a Savior and lover of sinners. For those of us here this morning who are Christians, believers, oh, it calls for a little perspective, doesn't it? I don't know. I'll speak for myself. It just gives me perspective. 
You, you pick up that camera and you focus it, and initially things are awfully fuzzy, aren't they? I'm not insulting anybody by saying this. I, I, put my, I number myself among the group. At times we walk through life like that as a Christian. Everything's just kind of fuzzy, spiritually speaking. And how we need our focus sharpened and our perspective rightened. And oh, that the Spirit of God would give us a great glimpse of this abundant life in Christ. I mean, what is the essence of Christianity, folks? What is it all about? It is not empty talk. Some people can wax eloquent about the faith. They talk a big game, but there isn't anything behind their talk. It isn't idle speculation. Some people love theological and philosophical questions. They find the discussions and the debates stimulating. Their curiosity is piqued. Sadly, that is all that is piqued. It isn't enthusiastic feeling. Some people need an emotional fix, an emotional high. And they run from one thing to another in search of it. It isn't grandiose experiences. Some people are in constant search of the spectacular. Moving from one thing to another. No, the essence of Christianity is this, friends. It is perseverance. And it is disciplined perseverance. We are not in a sprint. We are in the Boston Marathon, grueling physically and mentally. The Christian journey is not a sprint. It is a marathon. And it requires perseverance, doesn't it? It requires great endurance. And if there is one thing that stimulates me, motivates me, gives me that impetus to persevere and to put one step ahead, one foot ahead of the other and move on in this journey, it is this great and glorious promise. I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. Isn't that a cause for rejoicing this day? Whatever your circumstances are, Whatever your struggles are, whatever our sorrows are, whatever our difficulties and disappointments and disillusionments, heaps upon heaps, piles upon piles are, in the midst of it all, we have this life that is overflowing, this life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that true of you? Is it true of me this day?